Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and grateful to be here with all of you today. For some, autumn harkens a time of harvest, celebration, and abundance. And for others, fall is reminiscent of going back to school when the chilled air and early twilight draws us into quiet contemplation ripe for learning. This year, the change of season has taken a more somber turn with too many unprecedented calamities and tragic loss of life making the headlines. Our hearts and prayers go out to people suffering the trauma of devastating loss. With so much going on in the world right now, it's hard not to feel an overwhelming mix of compassion and helplessness. As I was preparing my usually upbeat opening monologue, I found myself overcome with a sense of gratitude for having a platform to share what I've learned and make a difference in people's lives. Having grown up in the Just Say No era at the height of the war on drugs, marijuana was as foreign to me as deep sea diving or landing on the moon. And those who knew me as a straight-laced youngster who never touched drugs thought I had lost my mind when I gave up my conventional livelihood as a journalist to dive headfirst into cannabis advocacy. But here we are. I wake up every day knowing that we have an opportunity here to change hearts and minds, save lives, and pave the way for a more prosperous and sustainable cannabis future. Reading about miracles of medical marijuana, new groundbreaking discoveries and the endocannabinoid system, and scientific breakthroughs about restorative applications for hemp are a daily occurrence. It never ceases to amaze me that the more I learn, the more I realize just how much I don't know. What I do know is that cannabis is a gentle remedy for healing emotional scars. And for those of us craving information about ways cannabis can change lives, now is the time to harvest all there is to learn. Knowledge is power, which is why it's so important for us to share all we've learned as widely as we can as often as possible. Our guests today embody that mission every single day. Not only are they educating a new generation of medical providers about cannabis, they are out there saving lives. I'm excited to introduce them, but first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. 
The endocannabinoid system is a fairly recent discovery that has opened doors for an entirely new field of scientific study. We are learning that cannabis not only relieves symptoms, but also may have the potential to be curative. More interesting is that cannabinoids, the molecules found in the cannabis plant, are actually very important for optimal human health. Cannabinoid deficiencies are often a common denominator in patients who express autoimmune malfunctions. They also appear to be prevalent in patients that have age-related conditions like Parkinson's disease, as well as neurological disorders like epilepsy. Another fascinating discovery, that through clinical drug trials, we have learned the effects certain medications have on a variety of conditions, and these can be related to the endocannabinoid system. We can document these effects and come up with theories about how systems in the body respond to certain drugs. Take, for example, selective estrogen reuptake modulators that are currently used to treat conditions such as breast cancer and osteoporosis. Recent evidence has shown that we may not have understood the complete picture with these types of medications and that they, in fact, have a clinical effect on the endocannabinoid system, and this effect may produce some of the drug's therapeutic value. Researchers are now finding that there are other classes of commonly used drugs that work similarly. This is very exciting for those of us who are beginning to fully understand the importance of the human endocannabinoid system. There are thousands of classes of drugs available, and it will be fascinating to study to determine how many of them work because they activate the body's own endocannabinoid system. I'm Dr. Brian Donner. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you, Dr. Donner. We'll see you next week. Okay, let's get started. I am very excited to introduce our guests. First, we have Dr. Raul Kouchwa. He's the Chief Medical Science Officer at Anant Life. He's an accomplished scientist with vast experience in different areas of human diseases, particularly stem cells, genetics, immunology, and regenerative personalized medicine. Dr. Kushwa has held faculty appointments with the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa and was an accomplished federal government scientist within the Human Health Therapeutics Branch of the National Research Council of Canada. He received his doctorate from the University of Toronto and has been a recipient of numerous prestigious awards by different foundations as well as the Government of Canada. Additionally, he served as a consulting scientist with the world-renowned Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and is a regular speaker in international circuits. Furthermore, he's authored numerous publications in medical journals and also serves as a reviewer and editor for several journals in the field of medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Kushwa, for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for the wonderful introduction, Snowden, and it's an absolute pleasure to be on your show. <laughs> Thank you. And next, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Mike Hart. He has seen firsthand how the opiate epidemic is affecting our population and believes that cannabis is an excellent alternative. He has dedicated his career to finding solutions. By taking action, he's seen amazing results. Dr. Hart is the medical director and founder at Ready to Go Clinic in London, Ontario. The clinic focuses on cannabinoid medicine, but also offers family medicine services, IV vitamin therapy, and specialized hormone testing. Considered an authority, he has spoken at continuing medical education events throughout Ontario, multiple cannabis conferences, and has been featured on a variety of cannabis websites. Earlier this year, Dr. Hart released an ebook with his co-author Jeremy Cosen, and he's also on the advisory board of Anant Life. So, Dr. Hart, thank you for being here. I'm glad you could join us today. 
Zodin, thank you so much for having me here. I'm uh, really looking forward to having a good discussion today. Oh, and, and no doubt we just have so much to talk about. I'm really just amazed at the science of uh, genome testing and looking into ways in which cannabis can be applied using those testing techniques. And to be honest with you, a couple of weeks ago, I actually mentioned both of you in an interview that I had about CTE in the NFL when I was talking to Dr. H.J. Raza and NFL Kansas City Chiefs Hall of Famer Nick Lowry who is now advocating for cannabis as an alternative to treat CTE and football injuries. And Dr. Raza mentioned the genetic testing as one avenue for trying to diagnose CTE, which, as you probably know, is a very difficult thing to diagnose prior to autopsy. So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of get into that a little bit because it is such a fascinating science. Dr. Kushwa, how did you get involved in this? Uh, Well, so um, after I uh, took on the faculty position at the University of Ottawa, I actually worked with a close friend of mine, and we launched AnantLife. So AnantLife is a Canadian genetics company, and uh, we have been working with over uh, 200 clinics in the U.S. and Canada, and we have been offering perhaps the most comprehensive, robust, and scientifically backed genetic tests for a spectrum of of disorders like cancer, autoimmunity, brain diseases, nutritional issues, and even ethnicity-focused tests. And again, all of the genetic tests that we do is based on the next-generation sequencing platform. And what that really means is that we are talking about accuracy greater than 99%. And over the last year, uh, we have been actively working with cannabis physicians, researchers, bioinformaticians, and medical geneticists as well to develop and launch what is truly the world's first genetic test aimed to identify predisposition of individuals to cannabis-induced adverse effects. And the test is really based on the robust analysis of over 30 different markers. And again, these markers have been identified by extensive review of clinical research carried out to date, along with data mining from our as well as external databases. So we have, we take that genetic information and along with that, we uh, take the family history of the individual and using our proprietary algorithm, we can do our risk stratification analysis and identify if the individual has low risk, moderate risk, or high risk of developing things such as cannabis-induced dependence, cannabis-induced cognition deficits, cardiovascular complications, and eating disorders. So... I'm curious to know, with the genetic testing so far, I mean, how often do you find that people have an adverse reaction to cannabis? If you look at the uh, recent research, um, studies seem to indicate that roughly 10% of cannabis users do go on to develop a psychological dependence on the drug. And again, when we talk about these percentages, they are definitely a lot, lot lower than opioids. But again, just like any medication that's out there, a medication is going to lead to adverse effects in few individuals over others. And that's where the whole concept of pharmacogenetic testing comes into place. So let's say if you talk about other clinically used medications, pharmacogenetic testing has been widely accepted. And again, the purpose is to identify if the medicine is going to have great efficacy if it has a potential for adverse effects. And the most common example are really medications that are used for depression and psychotic disorders. And just like any other medication, cannabis is indeed a medicine. 
And that's why, depending on the genetic makeup of an individual, individual can be prone to developing certain adverse reactions. And that's where pharmacogenetic testing or genetic testing to see if the individual is prone or not becomes really important. Yeah, I, people who are opposed to it often cite some studies that, that call attention to addiction, that call attention to um, heart-related incidents and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm thinking that this is actually a really good thing for anyone who is afraid of whether or not those negative impacts could actually affect them. I mean, absolutely. And again, um, as I said, just like any, any medication, you pick up Tylenol or Advil, certain individuals will develop adverse reactions. So a lot of these studies have been heavily extrapolated to an extent where it shouldn't be done in the first place. I mean, yeah, let's say 10% of the users do develop cannabis dependency, but if you talk about opioids, that's a lot, lot higher. And opioids are something that have been approved by FDA, they have been widely used, and we have seen firsthand what has hap- happened with opioid overdose. Well, and also what that's else? a physical a physical addiction as well. So the withdrawals from opiate addiction are pretty severe for some people, as, as it would be for alcohol. But have you found cannabis to have any physical addiction? So that's where uh, when we have been carrying out the genetic testing, in few of the individuals, we have been able to identify certain genetic variants, which when we uh, look into the databases, they actually show very high rates of addiction. So, I mean, yeah, an individual can be very prone, let's say, to developing cannabis dependence, but that particular individual is also going to be extremely prone or maybe extremely prone to developing things like alcohol dependence or opioid dependence. Right. So, yeah. So, but, and that's interesting because rather than just denying that any such potential exists, it's good to acknowledge that so that people are aware and give them the tools to uh, ascertain whether or not it's going to be affecting them negatively. Dr. Hart, tell me again how you actually got interested in cannabis because you come from a more naturopathic background. Isn't that correct? Uh, well, I am a medical uh, doctor, so I am an MD, but uh, in my medical practice, uh, I do try to use the least amount of pharmaceuticals as possible. I mean, what I try to do really is just keep patients on the smallest amount of medicine for the shortest duration possible. So some people uh, may view that as more of a natural way of doing medicine, but you know, I just find it that it's you know one one of the more effective ways of doing medicine and I don't like putting people on medications that they don't necessarily have to be on Um, and you know that really comes into play with cannabis Um, one of the reasons why I did get into cannabis and one of the reasons why I continue to use cannabis is because it's so effective for so many different disorders so I can use, so if someone comes to me and they have, say, both chronic pain and they have depression, and then you can even throw you know, insomnia on top of that, I can use one medicine. I can use cannabis, of course, and maybe using different strains for, for different ailments, but I can simply use one medicine to treat all those different disorders. I don't have to go to my prescription pad and write three or four different medications. I can simply just explain them how to use cannabis. And a lot of the times the patients come back and say that it's 
the most effective thing that they've ever tried before. And that's not just for pain, it's also for, for sleep and it's also for uh, mood elevation and, and anxiety as well. So, you know, that's the big reason why I like using it is because it can kill uh, so many birds with one stone. That's really interesting because if they did need to take other medications, there really aren't any severe counterindications of taking, is that the right word? I'm not a doctor, obviously, but there won't be much negative interaction between cannabis and other drugs in case they do need uh, other medicine for other conditions that aren't treated through cannabis. Correct. Uh, if you go on uh, drugs.com and you, and you type in cannabis and drug interactions, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see very few drug interactions. So it's very easy to introduce cannabis into someone's treatment regimen because of the lack of, of contraindications um, with, with other medicines. So because of that, I don't have uh, very much fear when I'm, when I'm prescribing medication to someone who's already on an antidepressant. And in fact, on that note, um, one thing that I find cannabis to be very effective for is for patients coming off of antidepressants. So you can use it. You can use cannabis, you know, particularly cannabidiol, CBD, as a monotherapy for treating depression. But the other thing that you can also do is you can uh, help eliminate or reduce some of the negative side effects a lot of patients get when coming off of these medications. And Raul mentioned earlier about, about the antidepressants as well. And I have a very difficult time getting some of my patients off of these antidepressant medications, uh, particularly Effexor and, and Paxil will probably be the two that I find patients have the most difficulty with. Um, and then with, and the withdrawal effects that, that they get uh, are really difficult to treat and they and their uh, their effects that are really specific to um, SSRI or SNRI uh, withdrawals, antidepressant uh, withdrawals. A lot of patients will, will report brain zaps. You know, if you uh, type in uh, antidepressant withdrawal symptoms, that'll be one of the first things um, that come up. And a lot of people also get uh, a lot of different mood uh, changes with it, uh, and they just don't feel themselves. So uh, in anticipation of a patient coming off of an antidepressant, you really want to have a good game plan there because otherwise um, they can really be in, uh, be in a lot of hurt for, for a few weeks when they're coming off of it. So I have found that, can that cannabis in particular, uh, high CBD, uh, has been excellent at uh, reducing some of those symptoms and at treating uh, the overall depression and anxiety. And the same could be said for coming off of opiates, too. Um, I, I recently interviewed Dr. Gina Berman, who has actually opened up uh, treatment clinics for people who are coming off of opiate addiction or, or trying to diminish the effects of withdrawal and actually wean themselves off of prescribed opiates. And she's just astonished by the results and how effective it is and how some, some people will actually come off of the medicine on their own after introducing cannabis as an alternative. Have you found the same thing to be true? Absolutely, Snowden. I have patients that 
were on opiates that were put in, uh, they were put on a methadone program. Uh, and unfortunately, on that methadone program, they were unsuccessful at getting off opiates and at getting off methadone. And then they come to me, and then I'm able to get them off uh, their opiates, and I'm able to get them off methadone if, they, if they've switched from Oxycontin or Tramadol or something to, to methadone. I'm able to get them off uh, methadone as well. So I find that cannabis is, is good in, in all stages of coming off of opiates. So patients who are uh, currently taking a pile of different opiates uh, that, are, that are being used for pain, a lot of patients can actually use cannabis in place of those medications and they're able to come off opioids that way. And then I have another group of patients who were, again, taking things like tramadol or oxyneo, oxycontin. Uh, then they were placed into a methadone clinic, but they you know, couldn't kick uh, the methadone. They were able to kick their other uh, opiates, but now they're not able to kick uh, the methadone. So with cannabis, we can actually get patients off of methadone as well. So it doesn't really matter what spectrum you fall under, whether it's uh, a severe opioid addiction that, that's concurrently going on, whether you're just coming off of, of methadone, um, cannabis seems to be effective for, for all different types of patients. Dr. Kushwa, when we were talking about the addictive nature of it, obviously the psychological addiction is far less uh, deleterious to someone who's trying to kick that it's more habitual wouldn't you say or well yeah i mean uh, totally that's uh, that's part of it but let's say if we talk about opioids in general i mean for the physician community to uh, really uh, grab onto medical cannabis and use it as a widespread treatment uh, there is a lot of fear factor which is involved there because mm -hmm. uh, the thing is with other medications like antibiotics or uh, a lot of psychotic medications you can do a genetic test and you can identify if it's going to work, if it's going to work well, or if it'll cause an adverse effect. But with a lot of physicians, because they have been prescribing opioids for so long, to an extent they're feeling a lot more comfortable prescribing opioids versus cannabis. And that's where, again, genetic tests can come into the picture to really help them identify that, okay, this patient completely has the all clear and we can, in fact, move this patient from opioids to medical cannabis. And the other flip side to that is that, of course, in few of the patients, it's going to be the other way around, whereby they could be highly prone to developing cognitive deficits with cannabis use based on the outcome of genetic test. And in those patients, maybe it's not the greatest idea to directly move them over to cannabis. But again, with the widespread research that's happening with cannabis strains, uh, with the levels of CBD and THC, perhaps down the road, strains can be engineered to better impact that population base as well, which is highly prone to these adverse effects. So it, it'll be interesting to you know, watch ha what happens as this becomes more and more common. Do you anticipate that this is going to be sort of a widespread tool for physicians? Yes, that seems to be the case. So uh, from the addiction clinics, for instance, there is actually a lot of openness to embracing the genetic test that we are offering. That'll be a really interesting thing to follow. And I anticipate we'll hear a lot more from that as well. And in terms of um, regenerative 
uh, medicine and as opposed to just, you know, preventative medicine. What's been your experience in seeing how cannabis has curative effects as, as well as like just relieving symptoms versus some of the other drugs that are most commonly prescribed? So one of the biggest problems for the research side has been that there hasn't been a lot of research that can be done with cannabis because, again, it's a prohibited substance. So um, as Mike was saying that you go on uh, drugs.com, for instance, you see a very few interactions there with cannabis. But again, it could be that maybe those interactions are not even there to start off with. And part of the reason is not enough research has been carried out. Uh, so that's something which is really sort of stalling work as far as regenerative medicine goes, because again, when you talk about the endocannabinoid pathway, the receptors are expressed in a lot of key tissues and cells. So really from a regenerative medicine standpoint, such as stem cell work, I mean, cannabis and the endocannabinoid system does play a very strong role. But again, how it does, that still needs to be figured out. And with the steps that we are taking towards genetic testing, what that's allowing us to do is really to develop the first database of genes or of genetic data of individuals, let's say, uh, based on their endocannabinoid profile, if they're prone to adverse effects, if they're not. So once we reach a certain critical mass, the data that we are gathering can actually be reprobed and it can really help not just in progression of preventive medicine, but also regenerative medicine at the same time. Very interesting. It really is. So, Dr. Hart, are you finding that patients are receptive to suggestions about cannabis in your practice? I think that they're becoming more and more receptive. I think that, uh, well, first of all, cannabis was really only started to be prescribed heavily in Canada in 2014. So it's just been about about three years. So initially, there was definitely a lot of resistance. But over the last year or so, in particular, uh, it's really opened up. That being said, though, Snowden, I think I heard recently that only 9% of physicians in Canada are prescribing cannabis at this point. So clearly, a lot of uh, physicians still don't feel comfortable with it. And I think that the reason is, is because unfortunately in Canada anyway, uh, cannabis is not in a lot of the guidelines. And when it is in the guidelines, it's, it's to be used as a last line agent. So there's still patients that come to me that say that they went to their doctor and they asked for a prescription for, for cannabis or asked for some information on it. And they were told that, uh, they can't get a prescription or, or can't be given any information because they haven't failed all of the other drugs. So it's literally you know, written in the guidelines that a patient must fail uh, something like NSAIDs, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, like, like, an Ad, like Advil, uh, or then even harsher medications like we've been discussing opioids. Like they actually have been told, patients have been told that you need to try opioids first. And if opioids don't work, then I can prescribe you cannabis. So, you know, a lot of physicians have a lot of resistance uh, with this. But unfortunately, uh, at the end of the day, a lot of physicians just want to give in to the guidelines and to prescribe based upon the guidelines. And that's probably why you still have that number at, at 9% in Canada. Um, I would say, Snowden, though, if, if we've got more education out there, and if uh, cannabis was considered to be 
a first or a second line treatment, then physicians would probably prescribe it uh, a lot more freely than they are now. And when you're saying prescribe, see, in the United States, using the term talking about cannabis, it's completely against the law on a federal level here. And it seems that Canada has a much more open policy about that. Is that correct? Um, Well, I'm not sure if I can really compare the two in a way, because I think ours is more... um, federally where whereas is yours is more by uh, state by, by state, state right right what i understand um but i think that canada as, as a whole uh has always been you know on the forefront of uh cannabis but unfortunately um at this point and as raul has has mentioned there really hasn't been too much research done in Canada, and a lot of the research that's, that's being done on cannabis now is actually being done in, in Israel, and they're really becoming um, the nation that, that's that's on the forefront in cannabis, which is unfortunate because you know Canada has has long been associated with cannabis and with growing uh, really great marijuana. So you know, with great marijuana, you can definitely uh, do a lot of great research. So I certainly hope that uh, changes in the, uh, in, in the very near future. And in the, the schools there, the medical schools, are they beginning to actually cover the endocannabinoid system at this point? Or is it still like it is here in the States where uh, only a handful of, of medical schools actually talk about cannabis at all in their required coursework? Yeah, from what I understand, Snowden, there, there's basically no medical education on cannabis in Canada right now because it's not really considered to be a first-line agent. And be, because of that, most of the uh, curriculum is still not focusing on cannabis as a medicine. Yeah, and, and therein, I guess, would be you know the crux of the problem, too. And education, like you said, is just crucial at this point. And it is here, too. I mean, yeah, it doesn't cease to amaze me that it's not a required course being such a major system in our body. Uh, so just yesterday, I was having a discussion with, uh, with the deans of one of the top medical schools in Canada, and we were talking about the endocannabinoid pathway, and that's what I brought up. I'm like, there is no formal education that's being carried out in any universities. And you know what he said? He's like, because there isn't a lot of research that's being done along those lines. And again, Doing research along those lines is being hampered by the fact that if, let's say, you're a federal researcher, you just cannot go on and openly research with cannabis. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a cash 22 that, yes, they want more information in research papers on endocannabinoid pathway. But to do that research, you need need to work with cannabis, which is not being done actively in Canada. Yeah, it's such a shame. And, And I think you were saying, Dr. Hart, about Israel. But yes, uh, there's so much research being done overseas, and a lot of these papers are published here in the United States and in, in Canada, I would imagine, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just amazing to me that the government of Canada wouldn't recognize that as the government of the United States doesn't recognize it. And, you know, it's kind of up to us, all of us who are... Who are trying to get the message out to really keep applying pressure to policymakers and and people who are deeply entrenched in, in health and human services in both countries 
to push this forward as, as a, a more urgent agenda item <laughs> in terms of policy. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, I, and I don't think that's you know, really a, a, an optimistic point of view. I think that's a realistic point of view. I think that a lot of uh, people now are very adamant about um, having access to good cannabis and they, and they view it as, as a medicine. And even though we are encountering a lot of resistance, I think the momentum has built up so much uh, both in Canada and the United States and, and all around the world, really, there's so much interest in, in cannabis that it can't really uh, be stopped at this point. I think that uh, eventually the the legislators are going to have to look at legalization. They're going to have to look at allowing scientists to do uh, more more research on this incredible medicine. Uh, and I think that the momentum is just going to keep up in, in 2017 and right through to, to 2018. You are absolutely right about that. And I'm, you know, I'm curious too about the, um, it seems as though genetics would really enhance research when you're doing human clinical studies. And Dr. Kushwa, how do you think that might work? I mean, absolutely. Just imagine if a clinical trial is being conducted with cannabis, whether it's uh, CBD or just cannabis, and if you have the uh, genetic uh, footprint of the individual as far as their predisposition to all the adverse effects go, and you have the genetic footprint of their endocannabinoid system as well, then based on the outcome of the clinical trial, you can actually correlate that to the genetic makeup as well. And then what we are gearing towards is really a personalized medicine approach towards using cannabis. And that's the direction we need to go overall with medicine. Can the genetic testing also determine to what extent someone might be deficient of cannabinoids in their system? Because we're beginning to find that a lot of people who have some neurodegenerative conditions or inflammatory conditions and autoimmune conditions, that one of the things they have in common is a real deficiency in the level of cannabinoids in their system. So would that help to determine what kind of deficiencies they may have? I mean, absolutely. So when we are analyzing the entire endocannabinoid pathway, we are really looking at all the genes, and these include the genes that include uh, the receptor genes, uh, genes that encode for transporters and action, genes that encode for metabolism, cannabinoids, and even uh, genes that encode for cannabinoid-related cellular processes. And when we are analyzing these genes, we are looking at the complete sequences of these genes in the individual. So it really allows us to even pinpoint to what extent the different components of the endocannabinoid pathway are working, if they're deficient in one receptor or not, what is the efficacy, and so on and so forth. So what we really get is a complete genetic footprint or complete genetic profile of their endocannabinoid pathway. Wow. <laughs> it's, it, it's an amazing science. When I hear things like this, it makes me wish that I had gone to medical school so I had a full understanding about it because I just crave the information. This entire science of cannabis is just so incredibly fascinating. And like I said in the opening, you know, there are breakthroughs. It's a regular occurrence to hear about some new discovery about cannabis. And, and just to touch on that, Snowden, uh, on clinical 
uh, endocannabinoid deficiency. As far as I know, that was first popularized by Ethan Russo, I think around 2004, but he's done a lot of work on it since that time. And the three conditions that he found to be associated with the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency would be fibromyalgia, inflammatory bowel disease, and, and migraines. And migraines in particular is very interesting to me because I have many patients that come to me and they say that when they get a migraine, their, their, their migraine level is, is a 10 in, in overall severity. And when they use, say, a pharmaceutical like Imitrex uh, to help reduce the severity of the migraine, they might be able to get it down, say, from a 10 to a 5. But I have some patients who tell me that when they use cannabis, it takes it down from a 10 to a 0 or a 10 to a 1. And in some of those patients, I feel like those are the patients that probably do have a genuine deficiency in, in cannabinoids to be able to, to respond to that. So, you know, just putting in, into practice uh, what, what Raul is, is doing um, with these genetic tests, you know, I would be very, very interested to take um, a subset of, of, of patients that I have who, who suffer from, from migraines um, and who get these, these dramatic reductions in their uh, severity levels with cannabis and to see what their genetic testing is. And my, my hypothesis would be that these patients who, are, who say that their uh, migraine level goes from a 10 to a 0, I, I, I would venture that they would have a clinical deficiency in cannabinoids. Now, I, I can't confirm that until I, I do the genetic tests uh, with, with Raul's kits, but um, you know, I'm going to be very, very interested in testing some of these patients in the future. And it seems that migraines and some of the neurological conditions that crop up in children, you know, between epilepsy and autism, and then in older age, Alzheimer's and, and other degenerative brain conditions, it seems that a lot of those are, in a way, related to different conditions that are environmentally induced, if you will. And I was speaking with Dr. Christian Bogner about this a while back, actually, in one of our interviews. And, you know, he was suggesting that cannabis is really helpful in protecting the brain from the toxins that can enter through other digestive problems. Have you found this as well? Well, if you do look at some of the research, it, it, it suggests that THC can actually inhibit uh, beta amyloid plaque formation, which is, uh, in essence, um, the formation of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, you're, you're, you're right, you're correct when you, when you say that, you know, cannabis um, can be effective for neurodegenerative diseases. And in fact, um, when you do look at something like Alzheimer's, you know, Alzheimer's is something where uh, we do have genetic testing for. You can either be uh, an APO2, uh, APO3, APO4, and, and uh, depending on which APO you are, we can determine uh, what, in fact, um, your, uh, your, your chances of, of getting Alzheimer's later in life are. And knowing that cannabis and, and THC in particular can inhibit beta amyloid plaques, then you, know, you could look at potentially 
developing something, say like a low dose THC with CBD, you know, I'm only talking something like two or three milligrams a day could potentially be like almost like when people take a baby aspirin for to, to prevent some cardiovascular, cerebrovascular complications, you could take like a low dose THC CBD to kind of prevent some of these neurodegenerative diseases that that uh, you know people always get later on in life. So you know if we can use some of the technology that Raul has to identify these high risk patients who are at risk of developing Alzheimer's or other uh, you know neurodegenerative diseases, then we can use cannabis as a medicine to help prevent that. Wow! And Dr. Kushwa, do these tests also include profiles that would lead to cancer and other diseases like that? So so just to add to that, so uh, we do offer other tests as well. And there is a particular test we offer where we look at the individual's predisposition to things like uh, a lot of autoimmune diseases, such as Crohn's disease, colitis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, so on and so forth. So as we were looking through the data that we have accumulated with all the patients, uh, a key finding that we had internally was that all the individuals, or most of them, that showed very high predisposition to ulcerative colitis, they had a very unique genetic endocannabinoid pathway profile. And again, that's where it comes into play that perhaps the endocannabinoid pathway may play a direct role in predisposition even to, even to things such as ulcerative colitis. Uh, the patient pool that we had was not really big enough to really infer and identify specific markers. But as we are gathering more and more data, I think it's going to become a lot clearer. And we will be able to identify those markers that perhaps correlate endocannabinoid pathway with ulcerative colitis and downstream with how the individual should be treated as well with cannabis. I would think it'd be fascinating to follow the patients who have submitted for the test Mm -hmm. to see what happens to their system after they start taking cannabis. Are you following people after the fact? Well, that's right. I mean, absolutely, we would love to do that. But again, as you can imagine, a lot of clinics that have ordered these tests for, uh, let's say, ulcerative colitis, they are not prescribing cannabis to the individuals. So, I mean, if we had a patient pool that showed predisposition, we knew their endocannabinoid genetic profile, and let's say they were started with medical cannabis, then we could really follow them and make strong arguments and perhaps really identify markers that show very, very strong correlation amongst all the processes for the disease. It's really fascinating. And I would think that if there are people who are submitting from cannabis clinics, and this would be a really good thing for people who are in practice, actually working with patients uh, with cannabis like Dr. Hart and it would seem really useful for these clinics and doctors treating patients with cannabis to send their patients back after the fact. It would enhance the amount of data that's available for research purposes later down the road, I would think. Totally. Wow. Well, I don't know. It's it really an incredible, um, an incredible science. And you know, I encourage people to learn as much as they can about it. And your books are available online, are they? Because um, I know you've got an ebook, Dr. Hart, right? Yeah, Is I've got uh, two ebooks available online. They're on my uh, website, mikehartmd.com. Uh, so the first ebook 
uh, is mostly on on cannabis and chronic pain and how uh, cannabis can be an alternative to opioids and how it's safer uh, than than opioids. Uh, and also, as we discussed, how it can be used to help patients wean off or or, or at least reduce their use of opioids. Uh, and then I have a second ebook that's on cannabis and, and PTSD, and that's because uh, cannabis has been shown uh, in in a small amount of studies to be an excellent um, medication for. Uh, the treatment of of PTSD, and I use it all the time uh, with my patients, particularly in the veteran uh, population. Dr. Sue Sisley, if you know who she is, she's um, she's been spearheading a study. Yeah, I do. I, I I'm familiar with with uh, Dr. Sisley, and I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of her work. Um, you know, she talks a lot about uh, anandamide, and and that's. Uh, the molecule that a lot of these uh, people with PTSD are are deficient in. And anandamide is literally called uh, the bliss molecule. It's something that makes us feel good, gives us uh, a sense of well-being. In fact, that's the reason for the runner's high is, is the release of anandamide. And what they found in a lot of these studies is that patients with PTSD uh, there are over 50% are have, or sorry, there, there's an over 50% reduction in anandamide in patients with, with PTSD. And when uh, you use THC, you can actually replace that anandamide. So like we were talking about earlier about you know, clinical endocannabinoid deficiency, well, uh, patients with PTSD have an anandamide deficiency. And when you uh, use cannabis, uh, and particularly uh, THC, then you're going to get that replacement of anandamide. And that's why so many of these veteran patients and, and patients who have PTSD uh, are feeling better. And that's really what I, what I talk about uh, in the book. But of course, I talk about a lot of other alternative treatments as well, because it's not just cannabis that's going to help you know, get over PTSD or anything else. It's going to always have to be a whole lifestyle and uh, several other factors as well. Yeah. And there's a big movement to raise awareness about uh, cannabis, particularly in the VA policymaking realm. And um, we have a, a, a congressman here, Ruben Galeo, who's been advocating for the VA to loosen their restrictions on veterans who are finding success with cannabis because often they lose their benefits if they if they actually uh, opt to go that route. And tragically, uh, we lost another veteran here in Arizona at the VA. And so many people who have had success treating PTSD with cannabis are just adamantly saying, hey, look, this can prevent another loss of life. I mean, it's, it's tragic. Veterans sacrifice their lives to you know, protect us. And it seems that it's in everyone's best interest to allow them access to a medicine that will actually help them when they return from war. And it's, it seems criminal not to. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% Snowden. And, you know, I, and another thing, too, about PTSD is there's been a lot of studies that have shown that a lot of the pharmaceuticals are actually largely ineffective for treating PTSD. And what's what's also interesting about PTSD is that all the medications that are used to treat PTSD are actually 
prescribed first line for other indications, meaning that there's no medication for PTSD. All the medications that are being uh, taken by patients with PTSD were actually made for insomnia or depression or for anxiety. So we don't really have any medications that were made specifically for uh, PTSD. But when you, when you look at, at cannabis and the mechanism of action that I described and how it replaces that anandamide level, it seems that cannabis is, is really something that it's a medication that can specifically be effective for PTSD. And that's what I've seen in my, in, in my practice. And we've seen it all across of, of Canada. There's veterans that are, that are saying that they're coming off of multiple different medications uh, with with cannabis. And, you know, I, I said earlier how some of these medications are not effective. And what's even worse is some of these medications can actually worsen PTSD. Uh, there's a group of medications you've probably heard of before called benzodiazepines. So that oh, would yeah. include medications like Ativan and clonazepam. These medications have been shown in studies to actually worsen PTSD. And some of these medications are actually still being prescribed. So we really need to look at, at the science and we really need to look at what medication is best for patients with PTSD. What are we actually trying to treat? And if we're trying to get our patients to actually heal, to come off medications, to feel better, and if we want to treat them specifically for their condition, then the medication that, that we're going to want to look at is cannabis. And we're going to want to use that as, as our first line medication in, in combination with a lot of other, um, you know, lifestyle changes and, and treatment modalities. Yeah. And also some of the side effects of medicine. I mean, if, if anybody watches TV and listens to these commercials, you know, you hear a long, long list of side effects from pharmaceuticals that are commonly prescribed. And often you hear that suicide is one of the predominant side effects of some of these medicines, whether they're the antidepressants or the benzodiazepines. I mean, it seems that they exacerbate those inclinations, especially someone who's suffering from the traumatic memories of war. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is is very controversial in, in, in many ways, but it's absolutely true. I mean, if you go on PubMed, there are studies that have associated the uses of SSRIs and antidepressant medications with an increased risk of suicide. And that's why it's written right there on, on most of the medications, and that's why it's said on, on TV. And, you know, like you said, um, you know, a, a few minutes ago, if we just introduce cannabis as a medicine and educated people on cannabis, we could actually save lives because the whole goal is to try to save lives and to get people to feel better. And when you see that there's uh, 20 or 22 veterans a day that are that are committing suicide. I mean, that should really be an indication to everybody that we need to wake up. What we're doing is not working. 
So if what we're doing is not working, then we need to make a drastic change. And the best change that, that we can make right now is to get away from the antidepressants and the medications that have shown in studies that to, to not be effective and to even worsen some of the symptoms and to change that and to use cannabis instead. Cannabis has been shown in, in studies to be helpful for patients with PTSD. And I've seen it in my practice and there's been lots of other doctors that have seen it in your practice. I'm sure Dr. Sue Sisley, you said, I'm sure she's going to have you know, a, a plethora of great stories of veterans who were on medications and came off with cannabis use. Oh, so yeah. that's the direction that, that we really need to go in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you know what? And that's why we are here, because you know, it's, it's so important for people to, you know, both policymakers and educators and just people out in the general population to hear from medical professionals like yourselves about the efficacy of cannabis and the safety of it and the ways in which the science is just growing. We've got a much larger body of evidence than, than we did when some of the first states passed medical marijuana laws. And it's just so important for us to keep sharing this information out and it's one of the one of the reasons why i just i feel so strongly that if people really are are resonating with this message and understand the importance of it i just urge them to share it with people who are naysayers who are very skeptical about it and don't believe that it's worth any more scientific study because it's a dangerous gateway drug that's that's illegal <laughs> so it's it's just so important to share this information and well thanks so much for during you know giving myself and raul uh the platform for for, for sharing the information snow and we really really appreciate it and we appreciate your advocacy for, for for cannabis and for uh everyone involved thank you for that yeah i it's a labor of love for me. I, I really feel strongly that this is such an important message that, like I said in the beginning, I just I dove headfirst into this once I started learning about it. And I've been writing about it since 2010. And it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that I really immersed myself in studying it and then just made that shift in my career because it's such an important movement. And I tell you what, I really appreciate learning more and more. So I appreciate both of you, you know, being on today and, you know, really shedding some light on the science that you're working on. And there's no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a very important aspect of, of diagnosing illnesses that could benefit from cannabis and to help people understand more fully why this medicine is so effective and you know to really understand what the risks are just like any other medicine so thank you for the work you do well thank you for having us on the show and uh, one more point i would like to add to that is that as genetic testing catches on and becomes more powerful it will it'll really help us in identifying that who are the best and potentially who are the worst individuals to move from opioids to medical cannabis. And again, from a therapeutic perspective, genetic tests can help identify which individual is really the one which is going to have the highest efficacy with cannabis use. And potentially with genetic testing, we can help eliminate cannabis-induced adverse effects altogether. 
And the moment that happens, that will really allow medical cannabis to come to the forefront and be a medical treatment of choice for a lot of diseases out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm getting the signal that it's time for us to say goodbye. So thanks to both of you once again. Really appreciate your being here. So if you're inspired by what you've heard today and want to support the cannabis movement and make sure everybody knows the importance of cannabis to human health, uh, we encourage you to tell your friends and call your congressional representatives and let them know how you feel. Together, we can shift perceptions and inspire eventual policy change so that everyone who needs the healing benefits can have safe legal access to it. So once again, I'd like to personally thank my guests, Dr. Mike Hart and Dr. Raul Kushwa for sharing their incredible insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work they're doing in Canada, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. I will post their biographies and a link to their websites. Um, you can also listen on demand at iTunes, Android, and iHeartRadio online. We have a lot of others to thank as well. First, I'd like to express our gratitude to Hemp Meds, Helterra, and Compassionate Certification Centers for making today's broadcast possible. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for his Medical Marijuana Minute update, Eric Goodall for our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, and our feed web at XRQK Radio Network for distributing our show. And of course, it goes without saying how much we appreciate our producer, Ed, and our engineer, John, and the rest of the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine every week. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, keep safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always, Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands, like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals, to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order.